Hello, this is John W. Henry. I hope Red Sox fans enjoyed this week's Major League Baseball Home Run Derby and All-Star Game. Sure, we didn't have any players in the Home Run Derby. Again, we don't have a lot of home run hitters on the team. And we only had one All-Star. And I missed Kenley's appearance because during a commercial, I went down to my wine cellar to pick up a bottle of red and I missed his three pitches. So that was very disappointing for me. I'm sure you also got to enjoy seeing all the great former players in the game. Former Red Sox like Mookie Betts, Nathan Avaldi, J.D. Martinez, Craig Kimbrell. And there's probably one or two others I'm missing. You know, I can understand it might be difficult for some fans. Kind of like seeing a bunch of old girlfriends out at a bar. They're all at the same bar. They all look great. And if you aren't there with someone on your shoulder, it can feel a little underwhelming. But for me, that's not an issue. I'm still rich. I still have a hot wife. They're looking at me. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 22 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Tonight's beverage of the week or beverage of uh, it's been almost four weeks since we recorded. But tonight's beverage, Four Roses Bourbon. So uh, someone asked me recently um, you know, what my familiarity with whiskeys and the, the whiskey market is and what my favorite spirits were. And you're working in the industry, you have some familiarity, but it's always something that I wanted to learn more about. Definitely more comfortable in the beer world than I am the spirits world. So uh, a while ago, I picked up uh, Lou Bryson's book, uh, Tasting Whiskey, and I'm better at buying books than I am starting them. And I'm certainly better at starting books than I am finishing them. So I jumped back into the book this week. And one of the things he talked about was having table whiskeys, like a table wine. You know, not every glass of whiskey has to be a $50, $80, single malt. So he, he has a few, usually you're saying he has a bottle of bourbon, a bottle of Irish whiskey, a bottle of Canadian whiskey. And those are the table whiskeys that, you know, if you're if it's a Thursday night and he wants to have a highball with dinner or a cocktail, go for it. So with that in mind, I picked up um, picked up this bottle of Four Roses and I picked up a bottle of Irish whiskey. So I'm going to try different ones until I settle on my own kind of table whiskeys, if you will, that I'll uh, keep in the house going forward. Definitely need to change the pace from beer. I'm burned out on beer. I mean, I haven't been drinking a ton of beer recently, but needed a, a little bit little uh, departure. So here we are. So did want to talk about the all-star game picking up where uh, our benevolent owner, uh, John Henry, left off on the intro. Uh, you know, the all-star game, it is a little archaic. It's never going to be what it was uh, before the advent of interleague play. I mean, I'm just old enough to... Uh, Remember what the All-Star game was like before that, where literally you would have these dream matchups you would not see anywhere else. Um, you know, the American League guys against the National League guys. You'd only see that either if you know the two teams happened to go to the World Series or you'd see it once a year in the All-Star game. But that novelty is gone. Um, and then or now where baseball's gone to a schedule where everybody plays everybody every year. There's really no mystery, mystique left of, you know, what, what you know, what does, you know, you know, pick a great National League player. You know, what is Nor what's Nolan Arenado really like? No, we get to see Nolan Arenado every year. And I'm just using him as an example because, you know, the Red Sox, you would play the Rockies, you know, once every three or four years. And I remember the first time he came to Fenway with the Rockies, you know, how eye-opening that was both at the plate and some of the plays he made in that Fenway series in the field. 
So that part of it's gone. It's not coming back, but I still enjoy the all-star game. Um, I wish the starters played more, played the whole game like they did back in the day. That would really give the game a little bit more juice for sure. Um, but I did want to talk about the all-star selection process because there's a few narratives coming out of this that, that are bothering me. So the first one that's bothering me the least are, you know, Red Sox fans disappointed that more guys didn't make it. Okay, that's understandable. You want your players to make the game. Uh, but the, the problem is, you know, like specifically like Verdugo is the big one, Yoshida a little bit to a lesser extent. You know, people are upset that uh, Wander Franco or, you know, Julio Rodriguez made it over those guys as alternates. You know, traditionally the way most fans think of the All-Star game is, okay, he was having the best year. A lot of times who's having the best year boils down to who's having the best first, you know, 10 weeks of the season because the voting starts, I think, what, early June. So it's not even the whole first half you're basing it on, just whoever had that hot start to the season. So that's the way most fans think of the All-Star game. Uh, Joe Sheehan, you know, you know, he started writing about this a long time ago. The All-Star game should be for the stars, not just who had the best first half. And I lean more that way myself. So. You know, as a neutral fan, who would you rather see in the All-Star game? Julio Rodriguez, okay, he's only hitting 240, but would you rather see him or Alex Verdugo or Yoshida? And it's no slight to either one of those guys on the team, on the Red Sox. But, you know, this, the Red Sox do lack star power. The Red Sox used to have a lot of star players, but they got rid of most of them. And the one star we have on the team, Rafael Devers, to this point is having a disappointing season. So... You know, part of this first half review, second half preview is I'm going to go guy by guy. And I'm going to give everybody a grade. So we'll do a little bit of a dive on everyone. But you know, this team lacks star power, and that's why they don't have more all-stars. All-stars cost money, and the Red Sox have been reticent to pay money to star players. So that's why it is. But the other narrative is that it's the fans' fault. The fans don't vote like they used to. Well, okay, that's true. For the starters... And part of this is Major League Baseball's fault because the all-star voting process is so convoluted now. The way it works, the fans vote for the starters like they have for as long as I can remember, probably 50, 60 years. The fans vote for the starters. So if you want to blame Red Sox fans for the Red Sox not having any all-star starters, I mean, go for it. The problem I have with that is I think people underestimate how many fans vote for the players they think deserve it most more than just vote for their own guys. I mean, there are more Red Sox fans, I think, that voted for, you know, Wander Franco or Corey Seager to start the All-Star game than voted for Kike Hernandez to start the All-Star game because Kike's a Red Sox and they're a Red Sox fan. So I think in general, when people analyze the All-Star voting, they underestimate the people that earnestly, when I say people, the fans, the fans that earnestly vote for who they think the most deserving guys are, irregardless if they're on the, 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 if that player is on that fan's team or not. So that gets overlooked when people bitch about all-star voting. Um, and then, but so that's the starters, but the backups. So when we're talking about Verdugo and Yoshida and the pitchers and whoever else, the backups are voted on by the players. So it was the MLB players that did not vote for Alex Verdugo, that did not vote for Masataka Yoshida. That has nothing to do with Red Sox fans at all. And when players vote on the All-Star game, or the All-Star team, they look at the same stuff that most, dare I say, more casual or, or less nerdy fans, the, the typical fan looks at. So if someone from... 
you know, the Kansas City Royals is in the dugout filling out his all-star ballot. He's going to look at Alex Verdugo. He's not looking at Alex Verdugo's war, which is excellent. His defensive run saved, which is among the league leaders for outfielders. Not even looking at the total extra base hits. None of that stuff. So those are the stuff that support Alex Verdugo's, you know, candidacy for the All-Star game. You know, you know, uh, Lefty McGraw, the reliever for the Royals, isn't looking at that. He's looking, okay, Alex Verdugo, he's hitting 290 with six homers. Yawn. Whoop-dee-doo. That's not an All-Star. At least, you know, if those are the things you're looking at, you know, home runs, batting average, RBIs, or just general reputation. So... The fact that more Red Sox didn't make the team has as much to do about reputation than, than anything else. That's in terms of you know national fans voting for Red Sox players who they think might be deserving or MLB players who think Red Sox players may or may not be deserving. And just MLB players and the all-star electorate not looking at the advanced stats that might support some Red Sox guys more than guys who made the team. So that's why the Red Sox didn't have more all-stars. Yes, the fans aren't as engaged in it as they used to. You know, MLB does need to clean up this process. I, I it has to be simple. It's just too complicated. It used to be you had a vote, and I remember too, it was a thing you'd like track the voting. Like every week, they announce, okay, you know, Corey Seager is seventy-five thousand votes ahead of Wander Franco, and you'd monitor it. In nineteen ninety-nine, that was a huge story, huge story with the All-Star Game in Boston, and Red Sox fans rallying to have Nomar start the All-Star Game at home instead of Derek Jeter. I mean, Nomar was really the only star position player on that 99 Red Sox team. He needed to be there. And we wanted our guy out there at our home park on the first inning. And so we we made that happen. But now they have this, you know, this runoff round where they have the voting and then they cut it off. And then it's the top two. Then you have the runoff for each position. So the so it gets narrowed down to two. Then the fans pick out of those two who the starter is. And then you have the player voting for the backups. Because back in the day, the fans used to vote for the starters, and the all-star manager would pick the rest of the team himself. You know, Joe Torre in the 90s used to, you know, load that roster with every, you know, slapdick, you know, Yankee he could. Um, I mean, can't do that now anymore. Now the manager has no say in it at all. Um, it's, you know, the fans for the starters, most of the backups for the players, and then the league office fills out the last six spots, Four have to be pitchers, two have to be hitters, and then the league office makes sure that every team is represented because we still have that Fakakta rule that every team has to have an all-star. One other thing for the all-star game is I hate Nike as a company. I hate that the swoosh is on the uniforms. I think they've butchered you know, all the uniforms in the NFL. You know, the City Connect jerseys, I hate the stupid blue and yellow bullshit the Red Sox wear. The white top white pant Red Sox uniform is iconic. It should not be touched. I don't even like when they wear the red jerseys at home. That pisses me off just a little bit every time I see it. So Nike sucks, and Nike makes these bullshit All-Star Game uniforms. The beauty of the All-Star Game, part of it, is you see all the uniforms from all the teams on the same field. And when you're watching, you know, I don't know who the fucking catcher, you know, token All-Star from you know, the Rockies is Elias Diaz with the game winning home run. So when he's circling the bases, I don't know where he is or where he's from. Let them wear the regular fucking uniforms and even the hats, the hats, unless you see the logo on the front of the hat, you can't even, you can't even tell what, what team the guy's on that way either. So get rid of all this bullshit. Let them wear the regular fucking uniforms like they did for 85 fucking years. It's a disgrace. So 
those are my thoughts on the all-star game, the all-star team and all-star voting. Uh, so we're going to do our deep dive first half review, second half preview. And I did want to talk about what's going on with the Red Sox system a little bit in the draft, a little bit, just kind of high level stuff. We'll be right back. Going into the all-star game, the Iblubinati were feeling themselves over, uh, the fact that the Red Sox sent three players to the MLB Futures game and kind of a sign that the system is getting better. And I'm not going to disagree at all that the system is improving. You know, the fact of the matter is when you win a World Series, I don't care if the system is 30th or not, which is basically what it was in 2018 and 2019. I mean, right now the Brave system is pretty low, but they have the best team in Major League Baseball and they won the World Series in 2021. The, the system is a tool. It is not an end in and of itself. Having a great system at the end of the day means nothing if it doesn't translate into major league success and if this system isn't used for major league success. So, you know, Marcelo Mayer, he played uh, literally one inning in the game, which why is the why have why send these kids halfway across the country for a seven inning game? Make it a nine inning game, then let these guys get more than like one inning and one at bat and one you know opportunity in the field. You know, Mayer's struggling in double A, which he's still only 20. He's very young for the level. That's not to be unexpected. You know, he might need some time to adjust. Um, you know, Nick York, he had a horrible year last year. He's looking good this year. He might be in the mix for 2024. Lord knows his team needs middle infield help. Um, Drohan, he had a great start to the year in double A, was named to the team, and then was kind of pulled out at the last minute. He's walking a bunch of guys in triple A, so... Right now, where the major league team is desperate for starting pitching, you know he's not ready. You don't want to call him up and have him, you know, walk the ballpark at the major league level. And um, so they they brought in a substitute, uh, uh, a reliever who throws hard. So you know, nice, whatever. Here's the thing with with these kids, and also um, Roman Anthony, you know, Baseball Prospectus and their midseason rankings had him number nine. Uh, you know, compared to like Fangraphs, MLB.com, BA, um, Baseball Prospectus definitely leans more into the stats than they do the scouting. So the fact that Roman Anthony's lighting up high A, it's BP, baseball prospectus, is going to give it more weight than some of these other websites that rate these guys. But here's the thing. The way the Red Sox are going, if Marcelo Mayer is not Xander Bogarts or close to Xander Bogarts, if he's not an all-star, that's a failure. If Nick York isn't an above average everyday second baseman, that's a failure. If Roman Anthony, if, you know, let's say three years from now, if he comes up, he's not a star, that's a failure. Is it fair to those kids? Absolutely fucking not. It's not fair to those kids. But if the Red Sox aren't going to pay market value for star players, if they're not going to engage in the top of the market in free agency, and if they're not going to be in on any of the premium trade targets at all ever, which they haven't been since High and Bloom has taken over, it is all up to these kids to be the future stars, to be the core of this team. And if they're not, it's a failure. It's not their failure. It's the team's failure. Because this is what so many of the Ibluminati, and I think even High and Bloom to an extent, doesn't understand and doesn't appreciate nearly enough. Okay, you're afraid to take risks. You signed Carlos Rodon, who I wanted the Red Sox to sign. He's made one start this year. That's a risk. Hasn't worked out for the Yankees so far. But signing a bunch of veterans for short money and hoping that 
these young kids come up is in itself a risk. Let's use first base as an example, because poor Tristan Casas has become a lightning rod. You know, we waited, we heard about Casas for years and years. They patched first base. If you want to call giving Bobby Dahlbeck, you know, a million plate appearances a patch, they patched first base. You know, the, the, for a platoon partner, they, they was Travis Shaw. And then when Travis Shaw flamed out Franchi Cordero, who, who looked like, you know, looked like someone who had never played baseball when he was playing first base. So we sit through all of that for years and years because we're waiting for Casas. Then Casas comes up and he struggles. And I'm going to talk about Casas more, you know, when I go through, go player by player. But Casas, the way this team is constructed, they need more out of him. And he hasn't been able to do it yet. I'm not giving up on Casas, but that's a failure. It's a failure of the organization that you're counting on these guys. You know, the Red Sox have never been in a position where, you know, you're, they were counting on a young player to be the savior like they are with all of these young guys. You know, when Pedroia came up, that was an established team with established guys, Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, if I think back, okay, when Nomar came up, okay, he was excited. You know, pe- you know, pe- you know the, the fan base was excited. Um you know, the expectation maybe not have been super high, but that team still had Mo Vaughn. John Valentin was a very good shortstop, very underrated, would have got a lot more publicity, would have made a lot more money nowadays than he did back in the 90s. Um, I mean, so that team had a little bit of juice, and the expectations for Nomar weren't super, super high. Um, you know, I just question how they're setting these kids up to succeed at the major league level in this market. You know, in Kansas City, you can bring up Moustakis, Hosmer, Salvador Perez, uh, Alex Gordon, um, Escobar, the shortstop, play them all, let them get their teeth kicked in for three years, and then they put it together for two. And then when they all hit free agency, you let most of them leave. You can do that in Kansas City. Can you do that here? We're not going to sit around for three years while these young kids hopefully maybe figure it out the major league level. So that's my concern, you know, with these prospects. And yes, Haim is doing a good job rebuilding the system, no doubt about it. But are you confident that that will translate to Haim being able to assemble a major league roster? I, I haven't seen any evidence of it. I mean, look at this team now. We're down to two starting pits. I'm sorry, three healthy starting pitchers. I told you before the season the starting pitching was going to be a problem. Too many question marks. Look at where we are now. We have no shortstop now. We've got nothing out of second base this year. How long is Chris, How long have we been waiting for Christian Arroyo to be a quality everyday player? And it still hasn't happened yet. You know, last year we basically played the entire season with no right fielder and no bullpen. Literally no bullpen. You know, just these glaring holes. That, that Haim has left on the roster. They're, that should be easy. Easy. Like, how hard is it to get a representative Major League shortstop who can make the routine plays and be adequate at the plate? Or a second baseman? Or a right fielder last year? Or a first baseman in 2021 and 2022? A bullpen last year? The only... The two biggest moves you made were Matt Strom, who was a decent sixth inning guy and Jake Diekman walking the ballpark. And this year with the rotation, 
So you have to know when you have a system like this, who the keepers are and who to trade. Dave Dombrowski knew that. Yes, he gutted the system, but how many of those guys that he gave up really hurt you? Really? Even Yohan Moncada, he had a decent WBC. I thought maybe he'd turn around. He's been injury prone. Not really. You know, Michael Kopech, he looked like he might turn around this year. But, I mean, just like just those two on the White Sox, that whole White Sox organization's a complete mess. And that's the cautionary tale because the White Sox brought up a bunch of guys and they made the playoffs a couple times. One was the COVID year. One was a real, you know, full 162 season. But now, you know, some of those guys aren't working out. You know, some of those guys are, you know, starting to, you know, go the other way. The window is closed. So they went through a long, painful rebuild where they traded, you know, Adam Eaton. They traded Chris Sale. They traded a whole bunch of guys, brought in a bunch of prospects for what? A couple of divisional round exits? That could happen here, folks. That could happen here. And that's what the Ibluminati don't appreciate. So that's the risk they're running, doing things the way they're doing. So looking forward to the trade deadline. You know, if I wants to prove me wrong, this is a team right now. Somehow is two games out of a playoff spot with clear needs, clear needs. You don't have to be branch rookie. You know, this team needs starting pitching and middle infield help. And if you address any one of those areas, this team becomes immensely better overnight. So if Haim can address those in a meaningful way, not waiting until 3.59 on August 1st, the trade deadline, getting, you know, the next, you know, Big Fudge or Hansel Robles or Eric Hosmer, real meaningful moves, because players will get dealt, because, you know, someone might shirt me, okay, well, who do you want him to get? Players will get dealt. It happens every year. The Red Sox need to be in on the best guys that address their needs. There's no excuse not to if they're serious about, you know, being a playoff team this year. Is this a championship team, even if they made a couple moves? Probably not. Odds are against them. You know, they'd have to be like the 06 Cardinals or the Phillies last year, you know, lightning in a bottle. Arguably, that 2021 team was a lightning in the bottle team. That team had clear holes, and, you know, they, they got hot at the right time. So if they want to do that, for once, Haim has to be aggressive. And I've seen no indication of it, um, you know, from afar, from my office. Hyam Bloom is a slave to his process. He won't change. He will never change. That could be a good thing, you know. That could be a noble thing, you know. Or going into the year, people are speculating: is his job on the line? I don't think he'd do a win now trade to keep his job. That shows some integrity, and I mean that sincerely. But also. I think he needs to deviate a little bit, be more aggressive, give up an actual meaningful piece. I mean, they haven't given up a single quality prospect to help the major league team in four years. Not one. Like, I'm not saying gut the system. Obviously, you know, he was brought here to rebuild the system. But can you trade a couple guys to help the major league team? You know, imagine if they traded for Luis Castillo last year and extended him. How much better off this team would be? They haven't been in on any of that. Or Sean Murphy. Imagine if he was here. You know, he was a, he started the All Star game yesterday. He'd be one of the best catchers in the American League. But you know, they weren't in on him. Or if they were on him, they didn't offer enough, and they lost him to a real GM and Alex Anthopoulos with the Braves. So that's what I want to see at the deadline. And 
for the love of God, give these kids a chance and let them put a real team on the field so they can come up and, and you know learn and develop at their own pace. Because as it is right now, these kids are being counted on to be saviors. It's unfair, and I'm, I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head. You know, so this deadline, this offseason, do more, do better. Okay, so we're, we're going to go player by player. I'm going to give them a, a letter grade, A through F. And I'm grading these guys on a little bit of a curve. So basically, how are they performing to expectation? That's the curve we're grading on. And one thing to keep in mind, too, is this team, I'm going to, when I talk about salary, this team's roughly $6 million under the luxury tax. And their goal this season is to stay under the luxury tax. So if I rip a guy for getting paid $5 million bucks like Joely Rodriguez, Okay, on one hand, what's five million bucks to the Red Sox? Okay, well, nothing. But where this team is tied up against the CBT and seems hell bent on staying under, then that five million it has a little bit of significance to it. So keep that in mind as we go through. So I just have the Baseball Reference page, and I'm just going to go down the list. Here we go. Catcher Connor Wong. Okay, so Connor Wong, he's done a decent job. Uh, according to Baseball Reference, War 1.9. So he's on pace for like a three-and-a-half win season. So that would make him like a solid everyday starting catcher. Fangraphs, if I remember correctly, more bearish on his first half. Um, you know, the defensive metrics he does well on, especially the arm, you know, the pop time. he does. He's good behind the plate in terms of moving around. The framing isn't great. My issue with Connor Wong and why I think he's a marginal starting catcher and real long-term realistically as a backup is the hitting. He's only hitting 235, sub 300 on base. He's got a little bit of pop, six home runs, slugging 407. So it's an 87 OPS plus, so, it's, so a 13% below average league bat. But I did check this within the last week or two that compared to other catchers, his offensive production or the team's offensive production is basically average. So... He's been pretty good. I, I I don't think he's your you know long term catcher of the future. You know Tyler Milliken. I've heard him talk about this a lot. Oh yep yep. You got catcher locked up with Connor Wong. I don't believe that at all. Um, I think it's an area they they could upgrade or should upgrade. Heimblub said they wanted to upgrade it last off season, but as far as we can tell, they made no effort to do it. Um, but if I'm grading on a curve, I'm going to give Connor Wong a B. Um, you know, looking long term, this is an area that the Red Sox should look to upgrade. Um, but in terms of what he's given you versus what you could have expected, I mean, he barely played in the spring. I thought he was for sure was going to get sent down. Um, so he's done well. We'll give Connor Wong a B. Tristan Casas, not a great first half. Okay, you know, he's gotten a little bit better each month, but he's still only hitting 225 for the season. I mean, we saw back in 2006, Dustin Pedroia had an awful, awful April. But he got white hot in May, and and by you know halfway through the season, he wasn't hitting 225 anymore. So this incremental improvement from Tristan Casas, if you know those season numbers should still be better, is what I'm saying. Granted, that April where he hit you know 130 or whatever it was was particularly bad. I'm very disappointed in the defense. I think I talked about this in the last episode. The coaching staff seems disappointed in the defense. He has the tools. He has the hands and the feet to be better than he's shown. 
But to this point, if we're looking at the first half as a whole, it's disappointing. I'm going to give him a D plus. Um, you know, you could theoretically give him an F. I think baseball reference might have him even below replacement level. But again, grading on a curve. Yeah, so baseball reference, they have him at negative 0.03 war. So he's been worse than replacement level. And replacement level is supposed to be just some scrub. You call it from AAA. Should anybody, anything less than zero is really, really bad. Uh, but it, it, it's starting to trend up a little bit. I think I'll have a better second half. You know, I told you in my season preview, I thought he'd struggle in the early going. It's been a little worse than I thought. Uh, so what did I say? Um, D plus for Casas. Yeah, D plus for Tristan Casas. I should be writing these down, but fuck it. Uh, second base, Christian Arroyo. So he got a little bit hot in that Oakland series, um, you know, where they swept the A's and they, they um, took two out of three against the Rangers and swept Toronto, this little run they've been on to kind of go five games above 500. Really, the difference has been they started to get at least a little bit of production from the bottom of the lineup because all year, most of the year, they've got nothing out of second base, nothing out of shortstop, and very little out of first when Costas was struggling. So Arroyo... You know, going into the year, he was penciled in to be the everyday second baseman. This was his big chance to prove he was an everyday player. And he has an 84 OPS plus, went on the IL with a hamstring injury again. This is who Christian Arroyo is. Um, he's miscast as an everyday player. Uh, 259 with a 291 on base. He doesn't walk ever or hardly ever. Not very selective at the plate. A little bit of gap power. He'll pop one occasionally. But as a backup, you know, he's not great defensively at second. You know, he catches what he gets to. Um, not a ton of range. And he's really limited when he covers at shortstop. Because ideally, you want your utility infielder to play a passable shortstop. And we're going to get to that guy next. Um, but Christian Arroyo grading on a curve. I give this first half a C-. minus, uh, And that's because I've never been the biggest Christian Arroyo guy in terms of him as a player. I, I like the way he plays. You know, when he's going well, he brings a lot of energy and hustle and whatever. But the fact that we went into a season counting on Christian Arroyo to be the everyday second baseman and it's been a complete failure is a failure of High and Bloom in the front office. Speaking of front office flares, failures, Enrique Hernandez, F, 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 and F. Now, if we're being fair, I thought Enrique Hernandez would be better than this, at least defensively. No, I I did never imagine he'd lead the league in errors and have all these throwing issues from shortstop. But you have a guy who's 31 years old and's never been an everyday shortstop, you're, and you ask him to be the everyday shortstop for four months. It's one of those I feel like I should have seen it coming, and the front office they definitely should have seen it coming. One thing I did see coming potentially were his issues at the plate, where he has a 62 OPS plus. He's hitting 221, only a 278 on base. Yo, Enrique's never been. Uh, the most patient guy at the plate. He's the type of guy, he hits fastballs, he pulls the ball, he'll hit some homers, he'll hit some doubles, he'll get hot at times. He hasn't really gotten hot at all. You know, maybe he's just losing a step. He's 31. You know, some guys lose it a little early around that age. But he's been horrible. He's been, you know, the worst player in Major League Baseball this year. You know, you, you can't not give that guy an F. And, you know, he's kind of become this punching bag. You know, people are speculating that he might get designated for assignment after the All-Star break. You know, I still like the guy. But the, the fact that he was paraded around as the face of the franchise last offseason was embarrassing. 
and, and the fact that he was counted on to be the everyday shortstop instead of High and Bloom finding literally anyone else who, with actual experience playing shortstop at the major league level, failure for the front office, failure for Enrique Hernandez. Uh, Rafael Devers, you know, home runs power, that's been up in the first half, but the average has been down. So, again, for grading on a curve, I'm, I'm going to give Devers a C. He did start to trend up a little bit towards the all-star break. He really struggled, you know, kind of stat-head orthodoxy is the whole concept of protection in the lineup is a myth. It's overrated. It doesn't exist. Uh, but I think Devers really struggled with it. You know, they were pitching him differently, and he's aggressive to begin with. But even an aggressive hitter can be too aggressive. But now he's starting to take walks, and now pitchers starting to have to give him pitches in the zone. So I look for a better second half from Devers. And I also think, too, he had some bad luck on, you know, hard-hit balls at guys with balls in play. So I expect a big second half from Rafael Devers by the end of the year. The total numbers should approximate a typical uh, Rafael Devers season. Uh, the one thing with Devers I think we've all been waiting for is, is he going to have like that breakout year where he kind of takes that next step from all-star to like MVP candidate? So hopefully we see that version of Devers, especially since, you know, again, he's the only guy that ownership has paid in years. Uh, Masataka Yoshida, A. You know, he's been everything is advertised. Um, you know, my concerns about the player were probably more rooted in the concerns of other Japanese hitters, because other than, you know, obviously, you know, Otani, you know, the baseball unicorn and, um, you know, Hideki Matsui and one or two other guys, the track record of hitters coming over from Japan to the major leagues hasn't been great. You know, it's been up and down with Yoshida. You know, it seems like the travel and kind of the wear and tear and playing, you know, 20 days in a row, he's struggled, I guess, or it's been an adjustment period. You see him wear down, gets a day off, then he starts hitting line drives again. So what you've gotten out of Yoshida is all that anyone could have ever reasonably expected from him. The defense in the outfield isn't great. Long term, he's a DH, um, but, you, you know, you can get by with him out there for now. Uh, Jaron Duran, A+. Plus. Nobody saw this coming. You know, you do have to give the front office credit. It would have been really easy to DFA this guy, trade him for pennies on the dollar. They kept him around. But I give all the credit to the turnaround to the kid, getting his head right, getting in the right headspace, getting in great shape. Because this is a guy who literally looked like he could not play the game last year. And he's been, you know, kind of on a rate basis, the best hitter, the best position player on the team in the first half. Uh, Alex Verdugo, A-. minus. Uh, tailed off a little bit towards the all-star break. You know, the defense, more than anything, has really impressed me. You know, when they got him in 2020, I thought he looked really good in right field at Fenway during that COVID season. Then in 2021, when they brought in Renfro, originally he was the center fielder. He didn't look great in center. Then he moved him to left, and Cora made a point of saying, oh, I like Verdugo in left. And then they had to move him to right last offseason after the old Jackie Bradley Jr. debacle uh, by High and Bloom. So, you know, really good first half. If this is the guy Verdugo is, you know, because you only have him for this year and next year, so now it's a question of do you want to extend this guy? I go back and forth on it. You know, again, seven home runs at the All-Star break. You know, ideally you want more power from your right fielder, but the defense, again, because whenever the Red Sox are good, they have an elite defensive right fielder. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I I caught the tail end of Dwight Evans, 
you know, you had Trot Nixon who played a great right field. JD Drew was a great right fielder. Probably would have been a very good center fielder if he had if he wasn't on a team with, you know, Jim Edmonds, you know, with the Cardinals, you know, during most of his prime or um Andrew Jones with the Dodgers or the Braves or whoever. Um obviously uh, Shane Victorino was an awesome defensive right fielder on 13 and then, you know, Mookie um who should still be here. He was incredible. So that makes me inclined to keep Verdugo. That and the fact they really don't have any outfielders that are close that could take over. You know, they're not going to spend the money on anyone better. So keep Verdugo. What the hell? Uh, Justin Turner, I'm going to give him an A minus. You know, he was never really bad at any point. You know, a, a slow ish start, but he got better and better every kind of every week, every month. And now he's got a 120 OPS plus. You know, is he David Ortiz or Prime JD Martinez as your DH? No. But the guy's just a ball player. I mean, that play he made in Toronto on that hit and run where literally as soon as he saw that ball go through the hole, he just immediately starts running to third base and draws the error and scores the run. I mean, this is a guy, I think at the time, 11th percentile sprint speed, you know, 38 with a bad back. That's just knowing the game and being a ball player. I, I mean, I even tweeted that out. Will Middlebrooks tweeted out three seconds after I did. I, I had the screenshot of it. So he's a he's just a ball player. You can see why. He was so loved out in L.A., why he was like a clubhouse leader and whatnot. You know, again, is he miscast as a cleanup hitter on a championship team? Yes. But in terms of what you could have expected, great job quality signing. Uh, Rob Refsnyder, um, I'm going to give him an A- minus. also. Um, he got it. I'm, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm surprised he's only hitting 265 with a 348 slugging percentage. You know, as we got closer to the all-star break and, you know, guys were dinged up, they had to play him more against righties and he got exposed a little bit. But as a fourth outfielder platoon guy, you know, he's been good. Uh, Adam Duvall, I'll give him a B. You know, first two weeks was on fire, then he was hurt, and he's been ice cold since coming back. But the overall numbers, you know, a 124 OPS plus, about what you could have realistically expected from Adam Duvall. Uh, you know, the injury was a fluke injury, breaking the wrist, diving for the ball. You know, I don't think he's an everyday center fielder. I think he's a guy who can play center field once in a while. I think the more he gets out there, he's going to get exposed and wear down. And if they trade Adam Duvall to free up space for Jaron Duran, I wouldn't consider that selling or waving the white flag. That would just be a good baseball trade. You know, nothing against the player. I think he'd have value on another team that needs you know, right-handed power. I mean, look at the Yankee outfield right now. Aaron Boone would probably walk barefoot over broken glass to have a guy like Adam Duvall in his lineup. So solid pro, kind of inconsistent, but solid overall production, fluke injury. Give him the B. Uh, Reese McGuire, C minus. You know, because originally he was going to be the, 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 the 1A to Wong's 1B where Maybe he'd play like 60%. Wong would play 40%, but Wong has outperformed him. You know, Maguire's hitting 267, but it's the cheapest, flukiest 267 you'll ever see. You get so many cheap hits. That's not going to, that's not sustainable. He's a backup catcher, decent receiver, can't throw. You know, he can hit in terms of getting back to the ball, but he has no power. You know, he's a fringe backup catcher, whatever. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, if anyone who thinks that, you know, high am trading for Reese McGuire was some type of coup, you know, blows me away. Uh, and Manuel Valdez, you know, he hit for their first like three weeks. He was up and then he immediately stopped hitting. 
He can't play the field. He does not have a position anywhere. I think he's a fringe major league player. You know, so if you think that this was, you know, worth pissing off your clubhouse to get this guy when you traded Christian Vasquez last year, I don't see it. The only guy who's going to salvage that trade is uh, Willier Abreu, who we have not seen in Boston yet. But if I had to grade in Manuel Valdez, D plus, and the reason why it's that high is, uh, you know, Sox prospects didn't have in Manuel Valdez in their top twenty when they called him up. So, I think the disconnect is he got hot. Uh, you know, some fans, maybe you know, some of the Bloom fans, got a little excited, a little over their skis on what in Manuel Valdez is. I mean, no one thinks he can play the field, but in terms of him as a hitter, I think that hot start kind of warped the perception of the player. He's a fringe major leaguer. If he plays another hundred, if he plays another two hundred games in the major leagues, I would be surprised for his career. Nothing against the kid; he seems like a nice kid, but yeah, that's who he is, in my opinion. Rymel Tappy, I thought he did a decent job. Was unlucky to get DFA'd. I'll give him a B. Pablo Reyes, A. I mean, this is a guy who was in, you know, I think Sacramento, wherever the A's AAA affiliate is. And I'm going to give Bloom credit. You know, one of the things I hammer Bloom for is not doing the obvious things. You know, last year they clearly needed a, a major league right fielder and first baseman. He couldn't do it. You know, when they when the Red Sox needed a shortstop, he got a guy who could at least field the position. And Reyes did that. And he gave you surprising offense. He hit 303. He doesn't have any power. I don't think it's sustainable. But if we're grading just on what he's done, A, you know, if he's your 26th guy on the roster, because we haven't seen him play the outfield here, but his other major league stops, he's played more outfield than infield, which actually makes the shortstop defense, you know, pretty impressive. So for what he is, he's an A. I don't don't think he's going to keep hitting 300, you know, when he comes off the IL shortly. But... You know, credit to Ian Bloom. Good pickup. Got a little bit of lightning in the bottle with Pablo Reyes. Yu Chang, you know, he plays a good shortstop. And and as Kike Hernandez kept, you know, throwing balls into the dugout, you know, the Red Sox nation, we're all pining for Yu Chang to come back. You know, before the season, I said I was rooting for the kids. You heard the comments about, you know, kind of the struggles he's had playing baseball in America and, you know, feeling isolated and, you know, it's tough. It's tough being that guy who's, you know, the 40th guy on the roster who bounces around from team to team. And he's been that guy at other stops. He's on four teams last year. And that's not easy in general, but you're, you know, half the world away from home. So I'm pulling for you, Chang. He plays good defense. He's got a little bit of power, but you, you, he, he can't hit. He just, he misses too many balls in the zone. He can't hit. Fringe major league guy, you know, one thirty uh, a thirty one OPS plus. I mean, that's even worse than his production at the plate and other major league stops. I'll see for you, Ching. David Hamilton, you know, I was almost buying into the hype on David Hamilton, you know, in, in Worcester, you know, the swing changes, you know, he went from a launch angle to a line drive guy, a little bit like Jaron Duran, you know, and he has similar speed to Jaron Duran. But he didn't hit in his short time in, in Boston, and he, he can't play shortstop in the major leagues. He, he can't. I mean, even as a utility guy, he's stretched over there. He just doesn't have the arm. He doesn't have the range. Uh, you know, this is on me a little bit because I wanted to see Hamilton, and I, I bought it. I bought in. 
to, to what he was doing in Worcester a little too much. And the fact that, hey, maybe the front office saw something in him, putting him on the 40-man, protecting him from the Rule 5 last year. But he's 25 years old, doesn't have a position, struck out a ton. Let's see, how many times did he strike out? I can't see it from here. I'm not going to look for it. But grading on a curve, D- minus for David Hamilton. Uh, Bobby Dahlbeck, 10 games, 14 play appearances, incomplete. Caleb Hamilton, incomplete. Jorge Alfaro, they just brought him back two games, five plate appearances. Why is he here? He's Franchi in pads. I mean, the first start behind the plate, you saw him, you know, he's got a cannon for an arm, but it just takes him so long to get rid of the baseball. He's like Randall Cunningham behind the plate. You know, football fans of a certain age would remember Randall Cunningham had the had, you know, probably the strongest arm in the league in his prime, but it took him just so long to release the football. And that's what Jorge Alfaro is like. I mean, he's strong, he's fast, he's got a strong arm, he just can't play baseball. He's Franchi Cordero and pads. I'm annoyed that he's here. So those are all the position players. I'm going to take a quick break, have us another sip of whiskey, and we will talk about the pitchers. Looking at the pitching staff and specifically how this team is five games over 500, the performance of the pitching staff has been good. The issue now on time of recording is the availability of the pitching staff. So I had both performance and availability concerns. The performance, by and large, has been a little better than I expected, but the availability of the pitching staff has not. And that's going to be the concern for the team. So you know, yes, they're five games over 500 and people are excited and you have a, an easy you know schedule coming out of the break and you they should be maybe positioned to go on a run. But if the All-Star break was 10 days ago, this team would have been under 500. So I think we're just kind of, you know, the, the snapshot we're taking, we just happen to be catching this team at a good time. They have not played consistent baseball to this point to show us that they're better than the me- mediocre middling team that they are. And my concern has been, as these pitching injuries have stacked up, is when does it hit the breaking point? We saw the breaking point last July where everybody was hurt, and it was Connor Siebold and Josh Winkowski taking starts, and the whole season went to hell over the course of that month. You know, it felt, it's felt like at times this thing has been teetering, you know, they've been able to manage having three healthy starters. It helps, you know, using two bullpen games against the A's. <laughs> but anyway, let's jump in and uh, talk about where these guys are right now and what they've done over the first half. Uh, Brian Bayo, A, 100%. Um, he's the, the your number one of the future. You know, he's, you know, whatever the highest expectations I had for him are there, you know health permitting, knocking on wood like you would for any pitcher. You know, he'll be your all-star next year. I don't know if he'll ever be a Cy Young candidate, but if he's a John Lester caliber ace, you'll take that 100 times out of 100. Tanner Houck, C. The ERA is bad, five and a half. Uh, The fielding independent pitching is 423, which makes sense, a ground ball guy probably uh, victimized by that god-awful Red Sox infield defense. The thing with Houck is, you know, they've used him as a starter. He's been pretty good. Let's see, 13 starts, 67 innings. He's still 
isn't quite there going through the lineup a second and third time. You know, he's added the split. He's done different things to try to, you know, give it, you know, give it or something to think about something for lefties to think about. But my concern is just that low arm angle. There aren't many guys who throw with that angle that are starters that go through multiple times in the modern game. So we'll see what they do when he comes back. I mean, the cheek was a freak injury. You know, he's had no back issues, which is good because he had back surgery last offseason, if you remember. So given the state of the rotation right now, as soon as he's healthy, you know, he's eating solid food again, plug him back into the rotation and, and see what you got. Uh, Cutter Crawford, give him a B. He's been pretty good overall. You know, 17 appearances, nine starts. The issue, I think, with Crawford is the more he starts, the more he gets exposed in the rotation. You saw that last year where he was good for six weeks, then he hit the wall. So I want to see what it looks like, you know, for another handful of starts going into the All-Star break with Cutter Crawford. I mean, they're going to have to leave him in the rotation because they literally have nobody else. Literally have nobody else. But he's been pretty good. No complaints from me. If he's, you know, your next Nick Pavetta, or a little bit better than Nick Pavetta, we'll talk about him. Fine, we'll take it. Chris Sale, again, we're grading on a curve. I'm going to give him a B plus. He was really putting it together. I mean, you know, I he's, he had 11 starts, and I said before the season, I needed to see a ratio of three good to two bad starts before I would proclaim Chris Sale back. And his 10th start was his sixth good one. And by good, it's just, in my opinion, was it good? So six to four after 10, I proclaimed Sale back. 11th game, the one game I went to this year, he got hurt. <laughs> Go figure. You know, Chris Sale getting hurt, everyone should see that coming. That should surprise no one. So again, grading on a curve, he was pretty good. He looked like a reasonable approximation of Chris Sale. The last half dozen starts. Hopefully, he looks like that when he comes back in August. But again, that's a shoulder injury. So who knows what that arm is like when he comes back. But the fact you got, you know, decent production for 11 starts, that's probably, that's that's 11 starts more than they had any reason to expect from him. Paxton, A+. I mean, this is a guy I expected absolutely nothing out of. Nothing. And, you know, inning for inning, he's been one of the best pitchers in the American League. If he if he didn't miss, you know, the first month of the season because he was hurt, he would have been an all-star for sure. Um, but he came back from, you know, that hamstring injury, and he's been awesome. Just with Paxton, you, you just know that banana in the tailpipe is coming. So in some ways, the worst thing that could happen is this team stays in it and they keep Paxton. Because if this team was out of it and they sold the deadline, a guy with his the way the stuff looks and the way he's pitching, both the stuff and the performance, and also he's making $4 million. He costs nothing. That guy has huge value as a rental. So if you, you know, let's say you stay in it and then you kind of miss the playoffs or let's say you don't sell and then August goes to shit and you're in last place again and you get nothing for Paxton. That's kind of a worst case scenario. So hopefully they pick a lean and hopefully, you know, if this team is still in it, they actually try to improve the team and get the most out of it. Uh, Whitlock. C. It's a 523 ERA, 450 FIP. So he's had bad luck with balls in play. Again, another ground ball guy. Um, you know, I definitely remember a few of his starts where Kike just, you know, his defense effect, you know, was not helping. Let's put it that way. 
you know, he's had 10 starts, 10 appearances. No, you know, hasn't pitched out of the pen at all. You know, out of those 10 starts, I'd say like five or six of them looked really, really good. You could see, you could see, okay, this is a, a number two, number three guy, a guy who can efficiently go six, seven, eight innings at a clip. But then the other games where the stuff just isn't there, and whether that's health, the elbow, or something. So the only question with Utlock is, is can he hold up as a starter? Again, if he can come back soon-ish, you know, they have to throw him in the rotation unless they make a trade because, again, they have nobody else. Kenley Jansen, give him an A-. You know, he started out the season on fire, had a couple of rough outings, four losses, um, not ideal. Starting to walk guys a little bit more. So kind of like April, he looks like prime Kenley. May and June, a little bit more like the more recent 30-something Kenley. But overall, he's giving you what you could expect. The only issue I have isn't with Kenley, is with the contract. They're paying him $16 million. Yes, he solidified the bullpen, but would that money have been better spent on Nathan Avaldi? Yes, it would have. Uh, Nick Pavetta, D. Now, he's been pretty good out of the bullpen, uh, but he had a 6.3 ERA in the rotation, and that's what's killing them. They need starters, and they still... Even now, with all these injuries, they still don't want to put Pavetta back in the rotation. His job was to be a starter. He failed at it. The only reason why he's not an F is because he's been pretty good out of the pen, either as a setup, like seventh inning guy, or they have stretched him out into a bulk uh, role with all these stupid opener games they have. So D for Pavetta. Winkowski, Josh Winkowski, I'm going to give him a B. Now, in April, he was dominant. He looked like a weapon. Um... And then May and June, and at times he's just gotten absolutely shelled. So right now it's a 3.20 ERA, but a 4.86 FIP, 9.6 hits per nine innings, only 6.9 strikeouts per nine. So he's get he's giving up hits, 54 hits, 52 innings. He's not striking guys out like he was earlier in the year. So grading on performance, it's a B. Looking ahead, I have concerns. I think he's a mop up guy which this team needs mop-up, bulk, whatever. But the idea of Josh Winkowski is like a setup weapon, I don't see it. You know, he flashed it a little bit in April, but I don't think he's that guy going forward. And so, you know, when he was, you know, on fire in April, you know, people are trying to, you know, re-adjudicate the Benintendi trade. No, 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 no. That trade was still a loss. Yes, Benintendi sucks now, but Franchi Cordero was horrible here. And Josh Winkowski, you know, it's. I did the math a while ago, but it's going to take a lot for him to uh, reverse all that negative production you got from Franchi to salvage that trade. And of course, the four players to be named later all suck. Chris Martin, A+, been the best reliever on the team. A 157 ERA. He throws strikes, doesn't give up homers. Awesome, no complaints. Brennan Berardino, A+. This was a guy, Haim got off the scrap heap. He's been great, both as an opener and is kind of like a middle reliever, lefty-type guy. Great pickup by the front office. A-plus there. Corey Kluber, F-minus, minus, minus. So, I didn't think Kluber would be this bad, but he's been awful. ERA of 7. He's on the fake IL with a fake injury. That F-minus, minus, minus is on the front office because this team needed pitching help. And this is the only outside guy the front office got was Corey Kluber. And he was the worst pitcher in the American League. 
Now, a guy who's 37, throws 88 miles an hour, has no margin for error. And with guys, with stuff that's that diminished, when they lose it, they lose it quick. And the problem with Kluber is his command, he's not locating in the zone. He's walking guys. So that means one of two things. He's either A, nibbling because his stuff is horrible, or B, he has to like muscle up so much to hit like 87, 88 on the gun that he has no control anymore. Either one of those isn't very good. This is absolutely killing this team right now where you have three healthy starting pitchers and your one free agent acquisition to help the rotation was this guy. Remember, they lost three guys in free agency. They lost Evaldi. They lost Waka, who's both been very good, and Rich Hill has been Rich Hill. So they lose three. The only guy they bring in is Corey Kluber, and he's been the worst pitcher in the American League. Caleb Ort, F, he sucks, doesn't belong in the majors. I never want to see him again. Ryan Brazier, F, was awful here. Went to the Dodgers. He's had a couple good outings there. Maybe they fixed him. I kind of felt bad that Orton Brazier, Brazier in particular, became this lightning rod. Anyone with a brain knew that at the end of last year, these guys didn't belong on the roster, didn't belong. And in Brazier's case, I think they actually paid him like decent money. I mean, Brazier should have been non-tendered. How much did they pay Brazier? Two million bucks. Again, is two million bucks a lot for the Red Sox? No. But... You're six million under the luxury tax, and you're determined to stay under. That extra two million gives you a little bit of extra wiggle room. So, again, F there, Brazier. Thanks for everything you did in 2018, even in 2021. But it was long past time to say goodbye. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Uh, Richard Blyer, F. Um, you know, you got him for Matt Barnes. Matt Barnes. You know, he kind of looks like the September Matt Barnes down in Miami. He's hurt again. So it's not like letting Matt Barnes go is blown up in their face necessarily. Uh, but Blyer, he's a lefty whose job is to get lefties out and be passable against righties. He's been getting, you know, killed by everyone. 5.80 ERA on the IL. You know, he's been rehabbing, so apparently this was a legitimate injury, not the phantom IL, but he's been terrible. And again, this is another guy they're paying, you know, real money to. So when you're tied up against the CBT, how much are they paying Richard Blyer right now? Let's see. $3.5 million. So between him and Brazier, that's $5.5 million for below replacement level production. Uh, Justin Garza, scrap heap guy, ERA of six. He had a couple good starts, but when he turned into a pumpkin, boy, he turned into a pumpkin. But he is what he is. Grading on a curve, he gets a C. Uh, Schreiber. Schreiber pitched at 18 games. I'm shocked it was that many. You know, he was pretty good, so we'll give him an A-. minus. <clears throat> the only knock on Schreiber is he got hurt. And the fact he got hurt shouldn't be a huge surprise. The stuff that declined at the end of last year from, you know, overuse because how thin last year's bullpen was. So it shouldn't surprise anyone he's hurt this year. You know, it's just a question of what is he going to look like when he comes back off that injury. You know, is the velocity going to be what it was like earlier this year, or is he going to get back to what he was earlier last year? So we'll see. Uh, Chris Murphy, Brandon Walter, they both get incompletes. They've combined for 10 appearances. Um, I mean, both got, I mean, they both have ERAs in, in the twos with the Red Sox, which is surprising because both of them had ERAs in the sevens with Worcester. They only got called up because, again, the Red Sox literally had nobody else. They were the last two healthy arms on the 40-man. 
So they got their chance, and so far in limited action, they've made the most of it as you know bulk guys in these bullpen games. But given what they did in Worcester, look out. That banana in the tailpipe might be coming. Hey, maybe they'll prove me wrong. Joe Jakes, he was a minor league rule five guy. ERA of five in eight appearances. I'm going to give him a C minus, and he it would be a C grading on the curve, but he loses a point because he doesn't pronounce his last name properly. His last name is French. It should be Joe Jacques. As someone who has a French last name and pronounces it properly, I find that offensive. Zach Kelly, um, only six games incomplete. He's on the 60-day IL. Poor kid. You know, undrafted, worked his way up to the major leagues, makes the opening day roster, gets hurt. Hopefully, he comes back big, better, and stronger. Uh, Ryan Sheriff, he looked pretty good. They only gave him five games. They sent him to Worcester, and they recently DFA'd him off the 40 men. I don't know why he didn't get a longer look. I'll give him a B. Uh, Joely Rodriguez, F. Uh, only six games, but an ERA of 14. <laughs> You know, the only good thing I'll say about Joely Rodriguez is he did pitch in that Oakland series, and he came on with uh, two on, nobody out, if I remember, and he looked pretty good. He got out of that inning. So maybe you'll get a little bit more out of Joely Rodriguez in the second half. But the previous five starts, oh, my God, was that horrible. And this is a guy they're paying a million and a half dollars. So so if you add him to Brazier and, um, and Blyer... That's seven million bucks on three guys who were far below replacement level. So that's seven million bucks could have been better spent. Again, you're tied up against the CBT. So it does add up in that context. Matt Dermody, one game he sucked. He's out of the organization. Who cares? Uh, Zach Littell, I don't even remember him. Uh, Taylor Scott, uh, the South African guy. Um, he's been an opener for two games. One was good. One was a little iffy. Uh, incomplete. So that's where we're at. Oh, Pablo Reyes <laughs> he was a position player pitching. We won't count him. So some good, some bad in the first half. What you would expect from what has mostly been a 500 team. They look better than they are right now because the all-star break hit at a hot streak. It's kind of the top of the wave. If the pattern continues, we're going to go back down again. You know, the Cubs... At one point, let me see. The Cubs still have a positive run differential. They did for a while. Let's see here. Yeah, the Cubs 42 and 47. Seven games out of the Central. Yeah, they, they still have a positive run, run differential. So the Cubs aren't a bad baseball team. Cody Bellinger's had a nice bounce back year. So, in theory, okay, under 500 team. Then they play the A's again. This is a team that, you know, I mean, the Red, the good Red Sox can keep up this good run, but it shouldn't shock anyone if they go to Chicago, lose two out of three, and get swept. That's what this team has done all year. And they can't afford that to happen because they have all three of their healthy starters lined up to pitch in the Chicago series. And they're doing that because they figure, okay, the A's are hot garbage. They're an embarrassment to the sport. We can get away with those bullpen games against the A's. And that's how they've been able to navigate having three starting pitchers during this month is they use two bullpen games against the A's before the break, and they're going to do two bullpen games against the A's after the break. So that's how they've been able to manage it. But they need Bayo, they need Paxton, and they need Crawford to keep this up. You know, I'm skeptical, but, you know, to this point this month, they proved me wrong. But 
just be keep in the back of your mind that blow up, that implosion potential. It's there, and it's more there more than people think. You know, the team played well. We're finally getting some decent weather. It's the All Star break. Some of that positivity starting to creep in a little bit. Just telling you, telling you, don't be surprised if that banana in the tailpipe, you know, happens again. You should learn. This team's done this all year. You know, I like the guys on the team. I mean, I talked about, um, you know, Justin Turner being a ball player. I mean, they have a lot of solid pros on this team. You know, this other than, you know, shortstop, this hasn't really been a clown show like last year was at time with, you know, guys losing balls in the sun and and just the one bullpen meltdown after the next. Um, you know, my issues with the team are just, you know, there should be better players on the team and the, the ownership should be spending money on better players and the GM should be more aggressive getting better players. But the guys who are here, by and large, I don't have an issue with. So, you know, I watch as many of these games as I can. I enjoy it because I love baseball. But if this team is going to be a playoff team, they need help. Trevor Story coming back. The big question is, is what does the bat look like? Last year was a 100 OPS plus league average hitter. Last year in Colorado was a 102 OPS plus, so just 2% above average. If Story had a better 2021 season in Colorado, he would have his his contract would have been closer to Seager or Simeon. Part of the reason why he got that cheaper deal here and he was the last free agent left that market was because he had that bad year in Colorado and there were questions about the elbow. Now, the elbow clearly affected his throwing. We can measure that through the StatCast data and also the eye test. We could tell he did not have the zip on the throws that he had before. My question is, is did that elbow affect the power? Did it affect the hitting? Because I did a little bit of a look in this last, um, within the last like week or so, um, I was talking to somebody. So looking at some of the kind of more advanced stats, I know last year was a 30% strikeout rate, not ideal. Yep, so last year in Colorado was a 23% strikeout rate. Last year was almost 31. It was his highest strikeout rate since 2017, his second year in the league. Um, The hard hit rate was the lowest of his career last year. Uh, The line drive rate was the lowest of his career last year. Um, And the big one I saw was the isolated power. So isolated power is slugging percentage minus on base because you want to take the walks and the singles out of there. You just want to measure the power. So the ISO was the lowest of Trevor Story's career last year. So was it the elbow causing this? The strikeouts, the decline in power, the decline in hard hit rate, the decline in line drive rate? Or is it just decline? They need, I said, I've said this, they need 2018, 2019, 2020 Trevor Story. You know, 2020, last year's Trevor Story would help just because shortstop has been such a dumpster fire. But what they need, what this team really needs, if it's going to be a legitimate contender, is they need a right-handed power bat in the middle of the lineup. You know, to replace Xander Bogarts, who isn't here anymore. To replace JD, well, I guess Turner replaces JD to an extent but not in terms of like the home run production. They need that power bat. They need that 30 home run right-handed bat in the middle of the lineup. Can Trevor Story be that? That remains to be seen. 
So getting him back, you need him back, and they have to add starting pitching. They have to. They've been able to patch it over against the A's with these stupid bullpen games. But that game on 4th of July against the Rangers, the Red Sox used six relievers in that bullpen game. And all six of them had spent time in AAA this year. You can't do that against good teams. So that's what Haim needs to do. We'll see if he does. I'm skeptical. Um, I expect to be thoroughly underwhelmed at the deadline this year just because I've been underwhelmed every offseason, every deadline since Haim Bloom has been the chief baseball officer. So that's going to wrap up today's episode. I'm going to try to record more regularly. I apologize that my absence has been this long. I even said on my Facebook page last week I was going to record middle of last week. Um, I just honestly I've been in a little bit of a funk, uh, some you know professional stuff and whatnot. So uh, you know things are going okay. Could be better. Um, things are coming along, but just not coming along fast enough. So trying to be positive on that front trying to uh, be motivated to you know do stuff like this show, other hobbies and interests, and not be a miserable prick. Uh, that is episode 23 of the Fenway on Fire podcast. Please share the show. Uh, friends, relatives, enemies, anyone you know who is a Red Sox fan, uh, please be sure to like and subscribe on the podcast application of your choice. Rate and review. That helps feed the algorithms, although I've been starving, starving the algorithm by not recording shows. So, I have no one to blame but myself for the decline in listenership. Uh, that is going to do it. There's a voice message line. If you want to send me a voice message, I will play it and I will react to it on the show. It could be anything you want. Um, anything else? Yeah, that's it. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll talk soon.